Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to Conversations with the Voice of Reason. I'm your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's conversant is Eliza Mondegreen, who is a grad student who is studying the psychosocial impacts of transgender identification or otherwise known as gender ideology. Last week, she went to the WPATH conference, that is the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, which I've covered recently with Stella O'Malley, who in that previous conversation speaks to what it means to issue standards of care in a strictly medical sense and how WPATH's standards of care are not up to standard. However, these standards of care version 8 were released and the ethics chapter was omitted and included was a chapter or section on Unix. Again, Eliza Mondegreen went to this conference and in this conversation we speak about what was going on there and what's going on in general with these professionals and their suspicious way of promoting an ideology that has very powerful impacts upon the bodies of children and adults. Eliza's a great guest. I hope to have her on again sometime. If you like her or vibe with her, do follow the links to her work in the description. Without further ado, here is Eliza Mondegreen. So how's it going? I'm good. How are your adventures? Um, pretty good. I was in I was just in the UK and got to spend time with a lot of wonderful people and now I'm home and get to go back to reading and writing about something that I somehow find endlessly fascinating. So life is pretty good. What's so fascinating? Dogs? Oh yeah, dogs. Endocrine systems of like sea slugs? Yeah. <laughs> no, I hear people get really into that. And I always think about now I'm probably going to hear that they're not mollusks, but that people who find mollusks dull are dull themselves, which I think is like a Thurber quote. Who? Ferber? James Thurber. Huh. Is he in a... My, he... my brother quotes this all the time. My brother loves mollusks. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, how many siblings do you have? If you don't mind. Uh, just the one. Okay. So he's into mollusks and you're into... Gender. Gender. Isn't that an interesting thing? <laughs> Where did it come from? How does it work? Great questions that more people should be asking. Um, so what do you want to talk about today? Oh, I thought we were going to talk about gender, but oh, okay. it's open to you. We also can talk about WPATH. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And your adventures in uh, covert ops. Yeah. Uh, we could start there if you want. Yeah, where do you want to start? Um, well, I did go to the World Professional Association for Transgender Health Conference uh, last month. Um, that's where they introduced uh, their standards of care version 8. 
or episode eight. Yeah, they're new standards of care. So eunuchs are in. Yes. Um, trans transracialism is still out. Mm. That transpired from one of the very few contentious moments that I observed in the conference. Okay, transracialism. How about transageism? Is that in yet? Transageism, it's kind of working its way in via um, the resurgence of multiple personality, I would say. Oh, cool. Yeah. Uh, it's BPD? pretty exciting stuff. No. Uh, uh, MPD. MPD. Or now... DID, dissociative identity disorder, or you're just a system with multiple headmates. I am a system. <laughs> this is Cherry. Um, yeah, made for TikTok. <laughs> it's great. I love it. Do you have any uh, pips or dids? I'm sorry. Feel free to go diddy if you want. And by diddy, I mean go dissociative identity disorder. If you have extra oh. voices, love Muppets. If you ever want to slip into another voice. Or talk like a talk like a Jerseyan. Okay. I think I'm going to be pretty disappointing on that front. Well, we'll see. We'll try to. You have a brother though. He's probably got you to do a little bit of silliness. <sighs> he's he's been the one who took the impersonation route, and I took the what he describes leading people down the garden path route. Oh. So. Okay. Um, I'm going to come back to that. Okay. Because you're going to lead us down a garden of earthly delights. Um, <laughs> okay. So, uh, Unix and no transracialism, no transageism. How about trans disabilityism where people pretend to be disabled or get their limbs cut off? Cause that's a thing. Yeah. So a lot of that came up in the Unix conversation where it was, <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's one of those things that nobody really wants to talk about because they can't say how they're different because they're not different. Um, it kind of comes up with Unix where it's like, how can you identify as a man who doesn't have balls if you have balls? Wait, say that again. This <laughs> sounds like, like a, some sort of like Nordic riddle. It does. <laughs> it comes up with Unix when, like in the session on Unix, which was the very last session in the in the conference, you know, you really want to end with a bang, um, or without a bang, I guess. I harder. I think they can um, bang still, but yeah, no, the Unix session. They are talking about men who identify as Unix but still have their balls, which is getting very close to the like eptemnophiles and the wannabes and the Unix. To tell me how much background we should. Go in. Ep eptemnophile. Eptemnophile. I'm a reader. So there's going to be a lot of those mispronunciations. No, I love it. I just want to know what it means. <laughs> eptemnophile. Um, it is someone who identifies as being an amputee of some kind. Um, and often, you know, may fantasize about it, may pursue it, may do it themselves, may try to find a professional to do it for them. Some professionals do. Um, and then there's also this kind of like, they're always these interesting, um, they're like groupies or wannabes. So they're wannabe amputees who wouldn't actually go through with it, but they participate in the online communities. There are wannabe eunuchs. Um, this language was found to be very offensive by many people who attended the WPATH conference. 
The word wannabe, like a faker. Yeah, like you wanna be that a it woman, was judging somebody. Yeah, that it was judging somebody's identity. The disputes over language in the eunuch session were just fascinating. And I, like, I think, I think what happened. My read on it is, you have these crazy guys who get up in a conference room. And they're talking about eunuch as one of the oldest gender identities and they're applying it to you know slaves and castrati like the singers from you know the middle ages and the renaissance and they are talking you know they're presenting all of this incredibly disturbing information about the websites where these men meet and um and things like you know people who identify, men who identify as eunuchs were very likely to have been threatened with castration often by a parent when they were kids so they make these observations that are really uncomfortable where it's like, okay, is this an identity or is something going on? Because this seems like an unusual trauma that someone might have in their background. My sense is that people felt very uncomfortable with the session on Unix. And the only way that they could express that discomfort kind of within the belief system without challenging all of the other basically equally bonkers things that have taken over the last three days is to couch that discomfort in the language that was used. And so all of the critiques that people made were about language. It was like, don't call them wannabes. That's judging somebody's identity. And, you know, we don't, Unix will use a pretty blunt language of like castration. And there was this woman who stood up and was like, you know, castration is what we do to animals. Like there's a word for this. And it's like a gender affirming um, architectomy, or, you know? Wait, hold on. <laughs> is there a is there a affirming word for castration? Uh, there are. I would say better euphemisms. I, it's really difficult to do a positive spin on a negative act. I wonder how they got through that without it totally dissolving in the brain on contact. Yeah, I mean the whole conference was like that. Though you have to. I mean, you have to be able to, like, they made so much of this, like, simultaneous translation technology that they had for, like, English, the language of the conference, into all of these other languages, mainly French, because it was in Montreal. But the real simultaneous translation was just all of this, all of these euphemisms and all of this jargon that people use that just hides from them what they're doing. So, like, Marcy Bowers, who was Jazz Jennings, um, one of his surgeons, and who is the president of WPATH, right now did the session that was like about gender affirming vaginoplasty on on like females with early puberty suppression or something like that and you have to translate that into english to know what that means which is like if you blocked a little boy's development before he went through puberty and he's a really stunted penis, and you want to turn it into a fake vagina, that's hard. Like, that's what the session was about. Oh, okay, because I was going to say what uh, ha happens about the puberty-blocked female that then wants a vagina later on. You'd have to perform some sort of <laughs> vagino-extendo. Yeah, vagino-extendo. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we should recommend some of these terms, because there's an endless need for them when you have this much to cover up. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, uh, okay. So there's amputees and then there's wannabe amputees, but they can't be wannabe amputees, but they don't want to go through with it. So what's the word for somebody who 
so they're not an ally and it's not a fetish right it can't be a fetish it can't be some sort of thing that you're eliciting it can't be a fetish like it's yeah. not allowed to be a fetish yeah but it's something that you are compelled to fantasize about and to even champion or push people yeah. down that path from a safe distance over long, online do it do it yeah post the pictures yeah. do it do it post the pictures <clears throat> yeah so uh castrati by proxy no i did they come up with the word they didn't, they they didn't say... suggest a different word for wannabes they said that it was judging people's gender identities to okay. call them wannabes even though they call themselves wannabes and how is Castrati, or how is the eunuch the first gender identity? Did, did they uh, back that up? Um, I, in the sense that there's a vogue for transing the past. Okay. Then you can go back and say, like, you know, this was a gender identity when the poor sons of imperial China did it. So, and it's like, no, it was like a survival strategy. Uh, what do you mean? Is it, uh, could you could you tell that oh, story? I, like one of the so eunuchs have often served in positions where they had sensitive access to like females in a royal household or to um, power, like in an emperor's court or something like that. So yeah. in imperial China, like there were boys from you know who maybe didn't have other means of advancement and would be made into you know would be castrated, would be made into eunuchs, and then would serve in the emperor's court to understand this as a gender identity is a stretch but well, no but if if you do understand it as a gender identity what a gender identity becomes is something that is opposed on nature it is a it is a synthetic man-made yeah. thing so it couches gender identity in a social construct that is affected upon or inscribed upon the body that's the basis of gender identity yeah and i bet they all had organic food at this conference, right? No GMOs? No, no, no. I, they had, you know, the big pretzels and everything. Okay. It was weird to have all of the trappings of a totally normal conference. And then, and then they're talking about, you know, three-year-olds can know that they're transgender. Oh, so they stop at three. It's not the uh, clump of cells in the womb. That's another group. Some of those people were there. I didn't, I didn't hear them. Okay. I mean, it was such, it was such an interesting experience because when I was thinking about, you know, before I went, I was like, oh, it'll be this like really kind of like clever, sneaky thing to do. Um, and when you're actually there, it's, it turns out like it's incredibly physiologically stressful, probably for some very good evolutionary reasons to be surrounded by a bunch of people who are really worked up, who believe that people who believe the things that you believe or don't believe the things that they believe are like genocidal heritage. You know, it turns out it's really stressful when you're like, there's nothing that I could do to convince them otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I don't want to go Goodwin's law, but you're, how do I say this? Yeah. I guess you're Uyghur Muslim in, in, in the communist uh, China. Um, I don't know. Uh, a parchik or yeah. office of, uh, media information so let's let's concentrate on just the story the physical uh 
story, your biological or biographical story. So what caused you to want to go to the W path? What was the thinking process and then the process of getting ready for it? What'd you pack? You don't have to get into that too much, but I just want like the, the tactile story details. Yeah. I mean, is this like, is the biographical story, like how I got interested in gender identity and then how I ended up there or is it? Yeah. Okay. Let's just Um, talk about you. And then we can get into the weird stuff again. Okay. Lead us through the garden. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I think the first time that gender identity caught my eye was probably around 2013. Um, I was working, I was volunteering with an abortion rights organization in Wisconsin. And... And I remember we were getting tied up in all of these disputes about like inclusive language. So the 2013 version of, of that. And we were having these meetings and right down the street, it was like, okay, right down the street, Republicans are like passing these restrictions and they know who they're targeting. So we have to be able to say who they're targeting. And I said this in a, in a meeting um, and said like, you know, this really doesn't, like it's really not about anybody's identity. And if we make it about identity, we're really missing the point. And you, that went over about as well as you would probably hmm. expect. Um, and I, I ultimately, I just, I couldn't put up with it. And I, and I really wasn't welcome anymore. Um, and that had been my first glimpse of this, where it was like, you know, this is a creative new angle, but this is really a pretty old taboo on talking what? about women's, on talking about women's bodies, okay. on how we talk about um, human reproduction. And I had also, like my undergraduate, and, and basically just like my obsession when I was a when I was a teenager through you know the, <laughs> the present was like totalitarian regimes and how they use language. And so I was really I was interested to notice this sense of constriction that I felt around language and what you were supposed to say and what that meant for what you were supposed to think. Yeah, and that was the first thing. That so got me interested. Let's let's um compare and contrast. You brought up an interesting point. So your words. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on Us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of forty-five dollars equivalent to fifteen dollars per month. Unlimited over forty gigabytes per month, face lower speeds. Videos at four eighty p. Active mint customers by five thirty-one twenty-four. Get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply. If rated PG. Republicans who are making laws around uh reproductive uh Mm-hmm. and abortion uh, they know the terms they know what they're talking about that is a constriction of language one that you probably agree with just on language wise now you, you disagree yeah. with what they they're doing with inscribing that language and then affecting their will and through law but they are constricting language right they're saying a woman is a woman yes a woman is an adult human female they probably even have that term because they just assume that everybody knew yeah. a woman is a woman is a woman um, and you're okay with that constriction, but then there's this other constriction where it starts to chop up the body. What's just, uh, discomforting for you about uterus havers, chest feeders, front holers? Uh, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, we're not talking about a human being anymore when we're talking about women in that way. 
Okay. I don't, I really have never seen how we could talk about, you know, women have a right or have a need to make decisions about their whole life. And if you talk about a uterus haver, like a uterus haver doesn't have, a uterus doesn't have dreams and doesn't have goals and doesn't have relationships. So it seemed, it just seemed like another way that like the humanity of women gets lost in the abortion debate. Conservatives often want to talk about, you know, the fetus, the baby, the, the, however they want to talk about it. I think that those of us on the, on the left should talk more about that too. I don't know. You know, I don't think that it's a, it's as comfortable an issue as we want to make it. Um, And then on the left, we have people who want to talk about, you know, the uterus, the cervix, the abortion, the pregnant person. And it's like, if you are female, you live your entire life in the shadow of your reproductive potentiality. It's not just when you're pregnant. It's not just when you want to get an abortion. The language needs to be able to talk about that. And I think when we talk about women, we can see someone who is continuous across the lifespan that is a whole person that is her body and also more than her body. And when we talk about a uterus haver, we're not talking about that anymore. That's beautifully put. Uh, lives in the shadow of her reproductive capability. What was your yeah potentiality? Yeah, you're, it's you're just, good with words. Your whole life is yeah yeah is is under that. Mm-hmm. I'm going to bring up something um, from a devil's advocate, and I don't mean sure. to to put it too pointedly as my own position, but just for the sake of argument, if if the right gets to talk about women and babies mm-hmm. and the left says, we just want to talk about women, but we don't want to talk about babies. We want to talk about cells. Mm-hmm. We want to talk about a, a, a clump of cells. Once the left makes that maneuver from talking about a baby to talking about something less than a human being, Mm-hmm. How does it not just go on and cascade into dehumanizing the entire human being? How do you stop? How do you make one move away from humanizing and not yeah. have that? The whole structure of language just like, just kind yeah, of... I don't know the answer to that. And, you know, I've been really uncomfortable with, um, I've been really uncomfortable with the, the talking about it as a clump of cells or it's, you know, I had an abortion six years ago, and I think that it really, I would say that the kinds of pro-choice messages and pro-choice spaces that I had been in before I got pregnant um, were not, like, did not speak to me when I was trying to decide what to do, because it did not feel like a clump of cells. And you have, you know, you have friends in your life who are like, wow, if you have like feelings about this that are complicated, like you probably shouldn't have an abortion. There was this expectation that if you had any feelings about it, that like that if you were just going to have an abortion, you shouldn't have a feeling about it because it was a nothing and it wasn't nothing. Do you know what I mean? And, um, Treating it as if it is something, or as if it, as if it is nothing, when it is something, uh, again, that's a cascade of denial that is going to grow yeah. 
over your life if you aren't able to process the feelings in tandem with the decision. And the language that yeah. obscures those feelings doesn't serve you in the end, dehumanizes you in the end. Yeah. That was, hmm. like, that was definitely an experience of just pretty total alienation from the way that people, I, from the way that people on the left talk about abortion. Yeah. That's, um, I think, I think being very careful, um, and attentive and compassionate around the issue of abortion is the way to depoliticize and rehumanize the entire complex mm -hmm. uh, issue. And, uh, and we're not in that place. And there can be mm -hmm. pro-choice, which is another play on words, or pro-life, which is another yeah. play on words. Um, there can be compromises and discussions around that. But if the language game is being played there, it will go everywhere. It will go, it will, it will, we are, we are watching. I, I really do think that the trouble that women are in now with gender, that that crept in through the abortion thing, through trying to linguistically yeah. play around with women's most, I'm sorry to say this, most powerful role in society is to, is to refresh no, society, right? So. Yeah. I think that it's very difficult to contain that. And I think that we haven't, I think that we haven't figured out how to think about our humanity and how to think about our like sex about being male and female in a context where being male and female, where having heterosexual sex doesn't equal reproduction in a lot of cases. Like we haven't, we haven't gotten to a place where we can understand that kind of technological intervention that we made on our society. Mm. Mm. Uh, and, with, with birth control, you're saying? Yeah. With birth control. Um, with surrogacy now? <laughs> with surrogacy. And all of these really sensitive subjects about what it means to be human and what it means to be in relationships with other people. And it's are surrounded by language games that prevent us from looking at what it actually is. So I can look at, you know, I made a decision to have an abortion and I made the decision for a lot of reasons. Um, and I don't have to pretend that that wasn't a really serious decision and it's better for me if i don't pretend that yeah you, you uh I, you made a very powerful post but it was uh kind of in, in your circle so i don't want to bring it up but oh, that's it was okay a very, it was a very beautiful post uh but uh, it was kind of shared very small on twitter uh, so i don't want to bring it up so no, it's, it's okay. obvious that you're you're compassionate and that that decision is not something that you take lightly uh, up to this day. It's a part of your life. Yeah, it's still a part of my life. It's, I mean, it's this alternative timeline that's just always running, right? And it's something that I can feel like it was the right decision. It's possible that if I, you know, if I never had kids, that I would might look at it really differently than I do right now when it's like that isn't foreclosed. Hmm. Um, but yeah, it's the kind of thing that you just have to live with it and not minimize it, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. um, 
but so yeah that was the first place that gender came up was around um abortion advocacy but at the time you know it was so marginal in the culture as a whole i was in like far enough left spaces that it came up but i could also avoid it um and so i would say that there was there were a couple of years where i was like something's going on there that's like unusual and that it would be worth paying attention to and nobody was forcing me to pay attention to it um and then like i had you know close friends who uh transitioned and i think that it's not you know that's not my story so i don't want to go into like great detail but like it's not possible it was not possible for me to be close to someone who was going through that process of coming to identify as transgender and to hold on to some of the things that I had maybe been prepared to passively accept, but that could not stand up to any actual scrutiny. Does that make mm. sense? Could, could you, could you concretize that? This is really interesting. Yeah. Point. I can hear it. Um, Feel in there. I think, I think when something is abstract, like the idea that someone can be male and feel like a woman or be female and feel like a man. And it doesn't impact your life in an immediate way. And you're not being asked to like pledge allegiance to it. And you're not watching your friends kind of turn their lives into a bonfire over that idea. Like you can just kind of be like, okay, you know, I can, you know, there's a basic kind of tolerance for like, I don't get it, but it doesn't really affect me. And I don't really have to think about it. And it's very different to watch someone who you know very well and who you care about very much and to see them, to see this idea come into their life and it just operates like poison that's poured into the ear, you know, that it's something that once you take this idea on board that you might be born in the wrong body, that like, here's how you would no, and there's no way that you could like disprove it or debunk it. It's just a trap. Like once you have let it in, you are just trapped and it just, it turns you inside out. And it does, it works basically the same way on individuals that it does on hmm. an organization that takes this belief on board, that it kind of can turn the mission and values inside out. Um, it has basically the same effect on a society that it has on an individual where it can turn, you know, if you're protecting this idea that does not have a basis in reality. You will sacrifice everything that you care about to uphold that idea. It will be required. Hmm. Yes. Yes. Uh, and it's very hard to see somebody do that up close. Yes. I, I've been seeing that with just the idea, which is easier to see now because it hasn't gained total dominance of the trans kid i mean it, it's gaining dominance yeah. but the trans kid it didn't exist five years ago it did not exist 10 years ago right it, it's a new yeah. new idea so you can just watch that idea um change people and then change people's change children's bodies yeah right? And then, and, and there's no, there's no limiting principle to the trans kid. You don't know what a trans kid is because a, a kid is not an adult. A kid's not yeah. even developed yet. Right. Yeah. But you create this idea and it's just, I mean, it's the idea like at the conference and 
you just see the idea of the trans kid that operates as this ultimate exception to everything that we know about childhood development, about adult puberty and how terrible it is for just about everybody, certainly everybody I've ever talked to, um, and about identity formation and all of these things. And it's like, if you label a kid a trans kid, all of that stuff goes out the window. Hmm. And I, it, it's most obvious with kids. Like, I think that it also works with adults where it's like, if you label somebody, if you say your problem is that you're transgender, nothing else matters, really. And the conference was the full, like, kind of, ex mm, mm. not thinking of the word, it's, it's, it's like the full realization of that idea that if you're trans, nothing else matters. Because yeah. there were sessions where, you know, respectable people in suits and ties um, would say things like, well, you know, if you're not, ideally, you wouldn't be actively psychotic, but you can be psychotic and still know that you're trans. Or a kid can be autistic and and then they know that they're trans and it has nothing to do with it. Or you could be traumatized sexually and know that you're trans and it doesn't matter. Like, if people can be really trans, there is no comorbidity, there is no life history, there is no context that matters. Hmm. And that that is why, well, yeah, that that's one of the reasons why the eunuch discourse is so important. Or or because that's the limit. Because they're like, well, okay, well, if, if this is so, what isn't this way? Okay, well, eunuchs, uh, race, age, race and age. Well, yeah. no, 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 no. But eunuchs are okay. Yeah. We, we, can, we, can, we can destroy the, the male reproductive system because of an identity, yeah. because we have a historical precedent of it. Even, even the China thing is so telling, right? Because who, uh, what amount of power is given to the trans woman or the girl in Dylan Mulvaney's case. He started mm -hmm. out mocking girls and now he's uh, made a, he, his worth over a million bucks. He's yeah, invited he's like to the, the prison. ultimate girl. And it was a total troll. It began as a total troll. That's my theory too. It's like, if you look at day one, if you look at day one, it's a total, a <laughs> it's a total yeah. parody, but like, it, it's indistinguishable from the entire thing. So he yeah. has to, he has to roll with it. I'm, I'm wondering if he's going to go all the way. Yeah, I, I I do think it was a parody. And now I'm like, okay, is it still a parody? Or has he become like that, you know, that healthy food blogger who's now like 500 pounds and eats, you know, Big Macs for clicks? Oh, yeah, I saw that. Yeah. Yeah. You pay? You, uh... <laughs> no, I saw the story, but Chris Chan would be okay. another one. But Chris Chan's a little bit different. Um, I think Dylan Mulvaney's a really smart person. I think he's pretty okay. damn smart, but I think he's pretty damn captured. Either that or he's playing a game. But I don't see how yeah. you can paint yourself into that particular corner. I don't see how you could ever get out of it. Just turn off the internet. <laughs> Walk away. Right. <laughs> right. Yes. Yes. You would have to like, you would have to go be a hermit. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. There's no other way out. Um, but just just to clarify my yeah. point, um, in I don't know, um, 
medieval China, uh, males would choose to be castrated in order to gain power because there's no other way up for them. And I yeah, think that that I maps think onto cases, the... like even their families would choose like that. It was a family survival strategy. And we like, you know, you pick a son who's going to get yeah, like a priest. The family. Yeah, yeah. Like a priest. Yeah. Yeah. And so yeah. you get some prestige from that. You get a trade off. Yeah. And the same thing with the trans kid, you get a lot of prestige. That's why this, uh, I think the Munchausen by proxy thing is it might be active in some of these mothers who are transing their kids, but there's also a lot of other just evolutionary survival things going on and then also i think even yeah. you could probably apply this and i don't mean any disrespect to any anyone you could probably apply this to um homophobia and how transition okay. is a way out of homophobia i think that homophobia um yeah. is is kind of baked into the sexual dimorphism of human beings we want to not have yeah. gay children just for pure reason of genetic. I mean, just so that the family line continues. Yeah. yeah, just from that basic biological point. But the trans thing allows you to trick yourself into, oh, well, it's actually a girl. It's not a boy who will never reproduce. Yeah. It's a girl who will never reproduce. Yeah. I, I mean, it just, it operates on so many levels because it's, it lets conservative parents who may have, you know, buried or not so buried homophobia, like they all, they go on the ACLU, they go on these, like, um, yeah. the floors of these legislatures and they talk about how they, they had this battle to accept that their child was transgender. And it's like, you had a struggle to accept that your child was gay. And then you found another way to say that there's something wrong with them. Like, that's what happened. Hmm. <laughs> it's not progressive. And there's no, well, that's another discussion, but, um, yeah. It's progress in a certain direction. Uh, that's for sure. Right. Um, yeah, I should stop using that. That's a word I need to learn how to use more carefully. We could have a conversation about that, but that's kind of, we're kind of getting into other, we'd have to bring up like Whig history and uh, yeah. liberalism. And that's a whole huge conversation. But I think that, that it's very pertinent to um, what led up to this. Um, just a constant rebellion, always looking for revolution, always looking for more rights, always looking for the next battle. Mm -hmm. And you see that operative in the WPATH, the World Association of Transgender Health, or, or, or yeah, some professional association of transgender health. Um, but the, the uh, that eunuch topic, right? That, that That's where the, the cutting edge is, and that's where people get to start yeah. to voice their descent and then also you can watch that descent erode because there's no limiting principle and if you accept this mm -hmm. you have to accept everything you have yes. to and yes. but but also the eunuch thing that's the exciting part it's like oh this is the yes. new ground this is the next battle because we already kind of figured out this thing what's the next thing yeah i think that that's really perceptive that it's like it's both you have no ground to stand on to criticize it and you know, whatever the most extreme thing is, is the greatest it's, opportunity to demonstrate your, you know, faith, belief, whatever. Interesting stuff. So terrifying. When did you decide to go to this? Why did you decide to go to the conference? Um, the, so the, I, were you just chatting with somebody and somebody dared you to go and you're like, okay, no, no. Okay. No, what really happened is, um, I like, when when a friend of mine transitioned, I was like, I'm going to figure out what's going on here. And it just started with like saying, 
I think, you know, you're going to be taking literal steroids. Like, what is that going to do to your brain and body? And my friend was like, you know, don't worry about it and I'll kill myself otherwise. And I started to just look into it and it was like, it's, it, it's like you pull a loose thread and the whole thing comes undone. So I pulled a couple of those and ended up, um, you know, losing some friends, uh, quitting my job in the um, California nonprofit sector, going to grad school to research gender identity, and then going to this conference. Um, Wait, you went to grad school specifically for this? Yeah, I'm in Can, grad school for this. Okay. Um, is there a way to not dox you at all, but yeah. to talk a little bit about the program? Yeah, or, sure. or at least the, the, the angle that your advisors are taking on that? And is there yeah. room for criticism or skepticism, I guess? Or do you have to fake it? I don't have to fake it. And okay. I've never been good at that. So <laughs> what I would say is I have my advisors are people who like one of them was quite interested in this topic. That's how I ended up where I am. Um, and the other was, you know, just an old school liberal who was, who saw people saying, you can't research this. You don't have the right identity or you can't research this. This is a problem. And she was, you know, and her response to that was to say, like, this is what we do. Like we research things and it is enough for somebody to say, like, we research things to have some cover to have your own research program. Um, so like, I just have a really small project that right now is just a, a thesis project about online trans communities. And from what angle? Sociological, psychological? What, what's your uh, um, domain? So like, yeah, like psychiatry, sociology. Okay. Yeah. Socio-psychiatry? <laughs> yeah. It's like, a huge experiment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like trying to understand psychiatric diagnosis in a social context. Okay, diagnosis. Um, can we back up and get a little technical, um, just so we yeah. understand the tools of analysis and, and their uh, limits and their strengths? So sure. are you taking a diagnostic model? Like, what are your basic terms of how you evaluate what you're looking at? So what I'm looking at is, my research question basically is, what are the kind of attitudes and knowledge and beliefs about gender that young people, especially girls, run into in online transgender communities? And then what are their like intentions and expectations around transition and detransition? Okay. And that really is like a discourse, kind of a discourse analysis where like you pick some key terms and like how do they how are they used what do they mean what how do they function within this community um so for me one of the concepts that was always the most interesting was this concept of um internalized transphobia i really wanted to see how that worked in these communities um we could talk about that or not it's, no it's yeah weird. i was just wondering uh what what's externalized transphobia <laughs> to begin with is that a thing <laughs> If if you deny somebody their, their pronouns, term. you're externalizing your transphobia? I guess so. I mean, if they have cis for trans, why don't we have external for internal, right? I mean, like, it, it, it's yeah. a dialectic, right? You have to define something by its opposite, right? Yeah. I, yeah, I haven't heard that term. Okay. 
So internalized but, transphobia is only applied to people who identify as trans and resist it. Not only. I mean, it's kind of, it's one of those terms that has like so many things with trans and the internet, you bring your own meaning and it makes it that much more powerful. Um, but internalized transphobia in trans communities online operates as a kind of a way to manage questions and doubts. So if you are struggling to accept that everything that you ever believed about yourself and everything that you can like physically see and experience about your body was wrong and needs to be changed, like if you have some doubts about that or some reservations about that, um, you can manage that by labeling it as internalized transphobia and then you have a responsibility to put it down because it hurts you and because it hurts other trans people. Mm -hmm. it, it's functionally, um, I don't know what, what the term is. Uh, do, you, do you have foxtails where you live uh, or where you grew up? You know, you know what they are though. They're they're these uh, they're they're these weeds, but the seeds are uh, in these arrows, and they have a okay. bunch of barbs that go in one direction, and so okay. so the barbs only go uh, in one direction, so it can't reverse. So it kind of just okay. So internalized transphobia would be a, a barb that would only go in one direction for okay. this ideology, right? It's it's a it's a packaging for the. Uh, I guess the meme plex that, that causes it to not be able to be easily withdrawn. Yes. It's, I mean, once you, once you buy into this belief system that includes beliefs, like if you're questioning your identity, you're trans, or if you doubt you're trans, you're trans, there's no way out. Okay. But yeah, but you can still it be a barb that you cannot pull out. Yeah. But you can Sorry. be questioning in one direction. You, you can, can be, be questioning in one direction. Yeah. Yes. You yes. can be curious. Yes. Okay. But that that becomes, there's no way to walk away from it within the belief system. Yeah. And within the community as well. And within the community. And so yeah. again, for, uh, in order to limit this or in order to understand it, you need to understand the boundaries. So D-trans discourse and the mm -hmm. interaction between uh, pro-trans and D-trans, which isn't even anti-trans, maybe some of it is, but even just D-trans itself is problematic for the trans community because you they can't not accept D-trans people because it's bad PR, right? They can't. Well, yeah. I guess they do with uh, with Casey Miller. They totally ganged up on Oh, that was Casey. terrible. Um, terribly. Uh, and this is this is the group that's all about love and acceptance and stuff. But they wrecked that poor uh, lady, um, if I may yeah. use that term. Um, but they they have to figure out how to square that. Either that or they they ignore the D trans community. But it, there's a power. There's a f fine line for that. And I think only the mature uh, directors of the ideology are the ones who are going to be able to have to command the underlings or just the yeah. true believers, the underbelievers, in order to deal with this and protect their community from yeah like i think that i think that people who buy into the belief system like they are right to see detransition as an existential threat it does call into question all of the all the you know the pillars of trans identity and the basis for transition um and i think for a long time the thought was that 
okay, if you're a researcher or a clinician or an activist, like you can just ignore it. And, you know, now we see so many, like such a wave of people coming out and detransitioning that it's not possible to ignore it anymore. And so it has to be reframed. And we see, um, you know, it's a gender journey and it's a nonlinear gender transition and it's gender fluidity and a nonlinear gender, what? Nonlinear gender transition. <laughs> so basically circular it. reasoning made flesh. Jesus yeah. Nonlinear. But the gender journey is like maybe the most interesting because. Yeah. Yeah. Because it works as like, well, this was just part of their journey and it shouldn't have been prevented and it couldn't have been predicted. And actually it was, you know, a good thing because it got them to where they are now and nobody's yes. responsible. Yes. Okay. We're not responsible. They were mistaken, but they can't accept. Uh, so I kind of take that tact, especially insofar as it's useful for uh, detransitioners to deal with regret, to say this is a part of my mm -hmm. life journey. This is a part of me. Yeah. You know, like this is uh, like, uh, I guess, Nietzsche's uh, eternal, eternal return. You have to say yes to everything that happens. That's the only way. Well, in a way, that's the way to go forward is to accept the past. So I understand yeah. that from a human development. Yeah. Line. But it's one thing for an individual to say, this is a part of my life that I can't take back. So I have to live with it and move forward. And another for, you know, a clinician to let themselves off the hook by being like, it's a gender journey. Yes. Did, was there any at the WPATH conference last month, were there any... Mm -hmm talks or mention of detransitioners? Yeah, but all in the context of reframing what that experience means and all, like nothing that accepted culpability. So it, it, nothing that accepted culpability and nothing that was capable of conceiving as detransition as anything other than a cessation of certain medical interventions. So nothing that was able to conceive of an ideological detransition where you say, I don't believe the things that led me to be trans anymore. Hmm. Can I, does that make sense? Yeah. And this is very telling, but they're all about uh, pushing the trans identification. Yeah. And reinforcing so, that. I mean, they, they talked about those studies of people who currently identify as transgender and, you know, like that 2% of them or something had detransitioned at some point and that it was because of external factors. So they love to talk about external factors. Oh, what are those externalized transphobic factors? Yeah, they love to talk about, you know, the medical system wasn't supportive enough, so the solution is to be more affirming, or the society wasn't supportive enough, so the solution is to be more affirming. If affirmation is the answer, then they can talk about it. But they cannot talk about internal motivations to detransition like okay. yeah like what yeah well i mean from my research on these communities like probably the number one big one is that people who detransition are like there just came a point where i was like it just wasn't enough like it wasn't enough to pretend to be this thing and to know that you would never be it and that was not a way that i wanted to live my life the clinicians and researchers at wpath who really buy into this stuff they cannot deal with a person who says it wasn't enough. They can't deal with a person who says this is a belief system that, you know, created dysphoria or that 
was this explanation for you know that it was that i needed explanation for like these different forms of suffering and trans identity fit until it didn't mm -hmm. or actively exacerbated other issues or actively exacerbated other issues or like the concept that like negative rumination can create or exacerbate dysphoria like these are concepts that they can't deal with but these are all over in both like online detransition communities will talk about it interestingly online trans communities will talk about this a lot like there will be all of these posts that are like did anybody notice that after you realized you were trans your dysphoria got way worse or like and every step that they would take toward transition, there will be posts that are like, did you notice that like after you had top surgery that your dysphoria got way worse in this other way? And everybody says like, oh yeah, like it's totally like, once you accept that you're trans, everything is more painful. Or I didn't used to care when people referred to me as a woman and now I can't even like bear it. Oh, wow. Um, uh, could you just define negative rumination? It sounds yeah, like negative what it sounds like, but... Yeah, it would be like, it's like self-talk or returning to a subject in your head and just kind of obsessing okay. over it. But something that, that brings you pain or discomfort or uh, dissociation something that brings or something. You okay. Pain or discomfort, yeah. Okay. So um, I'm, I'm searching for a term, maybe you can help me with this, but um, is it a null hypothesis? In in order to think through a, a theory or a hypothesis, you need to leave room for the opposite to be true as yeah. well. I don't know. I don't know if that's a technical term or if I'm just making that up. But no, it seems, I think it is. It seems like that's good practice just for clear thinking. That maybe what I'm thinking, the opposite is true, or it's not true. Maybe yeah. this is not true. Maybe this is not true. And the from what you can tell from the WPATH conference and maybe even the broader community is that they don't allow that. And so they have yeah. created a bunch of tools to eradicate doubt, maybe, or the falsification. There's no falsification, I guess. There's no falsification okay. possible. Possible. Yeah. Okay. But when you get to transracialism, transageism, and transamputeeism. Yeah. Then they go. There's discomfort, but nobody wants to say why. Okay. Do you ever want to say why? Yeah, I mean, it's really hard. Like, when I went to the conference, I was like, I'm just not going to participate in any way because I don't want to influence it. I just want to observe it. Hmm. But it's very hard to not. Especially when your disposition is to just, you know, like stir the shit a little bit. <laughs> you? <laughs> I thought you were a garden pather. <laughs> I think they're related. <laughs> yeah. So what was it like when you made the decision to go? And how was the flight there? Just for just backing up, getting a little. Oh, it was in my city where I lived. Oh, so. Okay. So you just yeah. walked or a bus or something like that. So I just walked. Um, okay. Yeah, what happened is it was in my city and it was like, oh, this is pretty expensive, um, even for a student. And I wrote to uh, to an editor and I was like, thinking that, of course, this person would say no. And I was like, if you cover my admission, I'll write about it for you. And about half a minute later, they wrote back and were like, sure. So that was that was how I ended up um, paying for it. On assignment. Yeah. Okay.
Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Journalists are not allowed. This actually became, which is unusual for for a professional conference, because often, you, you know, you want to share, you know, what you're learning, what you're discovering, how groundbreaking you are. Um, and this actually kind of became a plot point of the conference and a point of considerable anxiety for me was that like, so uh, the, you've talked to her, um, Crimea River, the, yeah. the, yeah. So she's a, she's a reporter. She was attending online only. And on the second to last day of the conference, her articles started showing up online. And there was this like freak out within the organization that there were like moles and the executive director of WPATH was like, if you see any suspicious behavior, like report it to organizers immediately. And I had had people like standing behind me in a session where I was taking a lot of notes, which was very unusual. And they were like, she looks like a reporter. <laughs> Great. You were confronted? No, I was not confronted, but people okay. were speculating. And like, I, you know, there's kind of a 35 and under, you know, 35 and over there was a variety of appearances and some people looked, you know, very queer and some people looked very vanilla, but for 35 and under everybody looked queer except for me. So I kind of stood out hmm. and people were not taking notes. Oh, which was also weird. Oh, did you try to uh, like, I guess paint some stubble on your face so you could pass as a yeah, I had been encouraged by various people either to come up Butch with a really up. great backstory or to like, yeah, queer it up a little bit. And I just couldn't. <laughs> I just couldn't do it. <laughs> I like I like uh, if you see any suspicious behavior and, and they're, they're talking about castrating boys. <laughs> right. They're like, if you see any suspicious behavior, by the way, it would be like taking notes <laughs> and not advocating for this crazy stuff. Oh, wow. Oh, but, but I mean, like, before I went to the conference, I was joking with a friend and I was like, you know, maybe if somebody really questions me, I should I should pretend that I have, like, multiple personalities, including, like, some TERFs. And then this was a real scenario that came up in the conference. I'm not even kidding. Okay, go on. It is unparodiable, if that is a... Let's make it word. up, yeah. Um... There was a session on how to transition patients who claim to be trans and claim to have multiple personalities. Okay. And in particular, what you do if the personalities do not agree on which steps toward transition they want to take. What do you do? Um, well, you know, if it's a personality system that doesn't have too many personalities, then ideally the therapist would talk to each of them individually about their embodiment goals. But if it's a system that has a lot of personalities and it's just not practical, you would get like a kind of a quorum. Or you could use, there's this app that lets the personalities communicate with each other. And they could use that to communicate about transition goals. I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. 
Are these people serious? Yeah. They were serious about this. And this, this is the session where the transracial thing came up. Because the presenters are talking in all seriousness about how you can have personalities that are, you know, of different ages, that have different backgrounds, that have different sexes, that have every different kind of, you know, accent, configuration, yeah. accent, life history, comorbid diagnoses, whatever. And there was a young woman, well, there was a woman about my age who stood up, who had like purple or blue hair or something. And she was a therapist and she was like, you know, I work with a lot of these patients and some of them have like, you know, alters that are a different race. And I wonder how to work with that. And they were so uncomfortable, they could not answer it. And so that was when it was like, everything goes except transracialism. Alts. Is that the word? Um, I think that's one of them. It's like headmates, alters, alts. God. That headmates. Was... Headmates. Don't you love it? Oh, God. Um... Okay, this is it's one it's 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 it, it's awesome except for the fact that it's real, <laughs> right? Right. No, it would be an amazing sitcom. Yeah, but it's real. I I I I uh, I wrote I wrote a series of novels, seven novels, with kind of this concept in mind. Uh, I use this concept with what with what concept. Uh, alternate personalities, uh, but also alternate timelines. Like there, the, okay. the the consciousness was spread across time from the beginning of ended time, right? And it had all okay. these different personalities and stuff. But <sighs> okay, but this app. So there's this app. <sighs> yeah, there's an app that can help. That can the help system of, the system. Yeah, the system of headmates to come to a decision about which irreversible medical interventions they want to get if they disagree. Oh yeah, you're, they're they're trans goals. What did you say? What kind of goals was it? Your your embodiment they're goals. Embodiment goals. <laughs> Boy, isn't that transhuman? Yeah. Well, okay. What about uh, what if you wanted like a wolf pelt? Um, are they ready to trans species you? I was really so they did mention. I'm pretty sure they mentioned trans species in this session, but did not dwell on it. Because okay. there was just too much other crazy to get to. Yeah. What if What if I want my thumb down here because I identify as an orangutan? Right. <laughs> Will they do that? Maybe next week. Okay. There's more to come. This I think stay tuned. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Uh, to, uh, thanks for walking in circles for me. We're in a labyrinth, which yeah. is also a garden. It's Pillar very appropriate. Yeah. Uh, like The Shining. Um, except for the medical industry is uh, all work and no play here. What are the pillars of trans identity? Have you been able to uh, locate or allocate those? You brought that up. So I'm wondering what are those pillars briefly or, or in, not briefly, but uh, just broadly. Yeah. Um, I mean, the way that I've thought about it the most is in the context of like, what does a medical provider have to believe to provide gender affirming care? So yeah. maybe I could talk about it that way. Yeah. Um, and I think, I'm going to see if I can do this off the top of my head. Uh, you have to believe that people can be, that there is such a thing as being really trans and that it is a lot like, that it is more like being really diabetic than it is like being, you know, really a Christian or really, you know, any of the other number of things that people could have done. That it is something that is akin to 
an endocrine condition, a birth defect, something like that. Okay. This means that being trans is something that is not susceptible to social influence, which is very important to believe. Not true. Uh, okay. It's not it's a social important. construct. Um, that it is that you cannot make somebody trans. That's the important belief. Okay, you can't so, make them trans, but you can trans them through making them trans. I mean, their body. Like, I would say they do not believe that, for example, suggestion. So one of the one of the examples that that gets cited a lot is like I think it was Joanna Olson Kennedy talks about like little girl who was seven or eight years old who comes into her practice who's just kind of a tomboy and like wasn't having a problem with gender but the parents apparently had a problem because they brought her to a gender therapist um and joanne olson kennedy is like okay let's say that you have a chocolate pop tart and it's in a strawberry pop tart package like is it a chocolate pop tart or is it a strawberry pop tart and the little girl's like well it's a chocolate pop tart and then like olson kennedy says like she has this realization that she's like a chocolate pop tart in a strawberry pop tart package now joanne olson kennedy she does not believe that it's possible to make a child transgender through the suggestion that they might be born in the wrong body. They do not believe that it is a belief that can be acquired. And that means that they will do all kinds of things that if you do believe that it's a belief that can be acquired, it seems just insanely unethical. Hmm. Like, oh, I mean, yeah. like, like, like suggesting to a kid who was comfortable being a tomboy that maybe she's in the wrong body. Like this is a suggestion that has consequences for her entire life and you know will she be a lifelong medical patient will she you know <laughs> how will society have to accommodate her will she be comfortable in her body will she kind of require everybody in her life to play along with this fiction it's a very consequential suggestion and you or i would be horrified to be in that room and see that suggested and taken up by an impressionable kid but Joanna Olson Kennedy thinks that she just helped the child to realize something that she already knew. Yeah. And didn't have words for. So there are no impressionable kids. There's only trans kids or not trans kids. Kids are not impressionable. Or kids are not impressed. Like, it's that exceptionalism again where it's like, when it comes to trans, kids are not impressionable. Even if we all know that kids are impressionable. By definition. Yes. They are sponges. By every conceivable metric of what it is to be a child, they are impressionable. Yes. yes. Okay. Except for... But not, but not when it comes to trans. Okay. Okay. Uh, and, okay, just to be clear, this is the body that's setting the standards of care that people such as preeminent uh, bastions of uh, democracy and civilization, John Stewart and... Uh, what's his mm -hmm. name? Uh, what's, what's the Oliver? Um, they, they're they're relying on WPATH, etc., to be the authorities in the room. These are the authorities yeah. in the room. Yeah. These are the authorities in the room. Yeah, I I haven't gotten all the way through the conversation. I was listening to it earlier today, but you and Stella were talking about WPATH and kind of how it came into existence. And she didn't put it quite this way, but it's like they basically self-identified as the organization that would set the standards, right? Yeah. And then everybody else was like, they probably know what they're talking about. And that, yeah. you know, that's part of this 
kind of a micro version of the big problem where everybody wants to believe that like if you if you've got questions or doubts like you're missing something but somebody else has got it mm -hmm. so people think wpath has got it mm -hmm. people think the american academy of pediatrics has got it or the endocrine society has got it mm -hmm. or yeah or the pediatric, yeah. Is, psychiatry yeah yeah the alternative is pretty horrifying because it's like either you're missing something or we're doing this really terrible thing so of course you hope that you're missing something yes yes wpath specifically um to kind of uh summarize and to lose uh, some detail they self-identified mm -hmm. as authorities yes and then they invented their authority over time or their authority or prestige accrued by faking it and then they yeah. made it but yeah. when you when you go back to it their standards of care according to stella malley are not up to par with any other standards of care as that word is yeah. used in actual medicine or yeah. in other kinds of actual medicine it's not actual medicine yeah they do not it's not like standards of care and actual medicine i think this was the so they're on standards of care eight now i think that they actually advertise the standards of care eight as the first that would be evidence-based hmm. isn't that great um and at the conference you they were very clear about what they meant by evidence-based so in the session on adolescence and this was this was repeated in other sessions they would be like we didn't consider anything as evidence if it didn't take gender diversity to be a normal and expected part of human variation so anything that says maybe people aren't born in the wrong body we didn't consider it and they were proud of that yeah they repeated it over and over again yeah okay that's ethical yeah yeah there was I mean, one of the things that was so, they're not the funniest group of people, as you might imagine. Um, Intentionally. Right. But the thing that they kept making really dark jokes about would be like conversion therapy or assessment or all of these things. So there's this, they will act like they are taking what they are doing very, very seriously and that they have this like almost sacred charge to for example children who believe that they're transgender and then they'll say things like well i hope you know like we said earlier like i really you know ideally somebody wouldn't be actively psychotic when they started testosterone but you know ideally somebody wouldn't be actively psychotic when they started school stool softeners like that was a real example stool softeners yeah they would talk about people in asylums and be like, well, they could still consent to take their high blood pressure medication and their stool softeners, but they can't consent to take testosterone. They just, they constantly like muddy it. And so any basis that you might have to be like, you know, this is really different would be undercut right away. Or they'll, they'll pretend that they take, you know, develop, they talk about, this is the conference and the standards of care where they abolished ultimately age minimums for adolescents, for puberty blockers for hormones for surgeries everything um there were a lot of contradictory justifications for why they did that 
So um, l- let's l- let's slow down and, and highlight mm-hmm. that because I did speak with Stella O'Malley about that. They published the standards of care, and then within 24 hours, they took out their yeah. age requirements. They had age requirements yeah. like mastectomy at 12 or whatever. Uh, yeah, you know, no no younger than this, and they took that out without. And Stella made a big point about this that. There was no way that they could have got all those 500 or whatever signatories to come no. up and, and then take that out. So for some reason, they took yeah. that out right away. So let's, with that background, let's let's talk about why. Or yeah, why, why they did they it. edit it yeah. after publication? Yeah. It's a really interesting question for which many explanations were floated, including that the ages were a distraction. And I can see that it would be very inconvenient to advocate for, to sit, to have like in the United States, we've had several months of children's hospitals whose promotional materials say that they perform surgeries on kids and the research studies that come out say they perform surgeries on kids and the insurance data says that they perform surgery on kids and and when their PR departments are like, we absolutely don't do that. So it'd be a very bad look for WPATH to be like, mastectomies at 15 is great. Vaginoplasty at 17 is great. Um, but then there were others like, <laughs> there were alternative explanations like that there had been intense lobbying from doctors and activists inside WPATH who thought that having any age minimums was inconsistent with gender affirming care, which it is. Like if a kid is really trans and you can't make somebody trans and they're never gonna change and they're gonna kill themselves if you don't affirm them, like why would you have an age limit? (sighs) So there were a lot of different explanations and, and they would say, you know, we took out the ages and we really wanna focus on, you know, stage, not age, so developmental stage. Okay. That the child is at. Like Tanner or something or another? Like Tanner, but also like, you know, a kind of a, a cognitive and emotional maturity stage. And they'll nod at that and they'll say like, you know, all 13-year-olds don't alike. Some 13-year-olds are much more developed and advanced in terms of what they can think about about the future. And then two minutes later, they'll be like, you know, and some 30-year-olds, you know, don't, you know, some 30-year-olds are much more advanced than other 30-year-olds. And it's like, you're not taking developmental stage seriously if you're comparing someone who's going through adolescence to a 30-year-old. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, wow. Um, there's things that we can say about the um, intellectually stunted, but maybe we'll yeah. just let that ship sail. Yeah. Did you get any sense of... Did you, did you look in the people's eyes? And, and see any doubts or any dissonance or just insanity or conviction? Like, like were, were they, was there a religious fervor? Were, were, was it yeah. objective somehow? Like, like just neutral? Were people neutral? Was, what's the emotion? Because uh, it seems like this is so volatile. Yeah. So what I would say is that the conference really unfolds on these two different levels. And one of them is this abstract level where you have like this battle between you know the forces of affirmation and transphobia so good and evil um and people are very comfortable talking about that and they get very fired up and the other level in which it unfolds is the level of like surgical technique and getting insurance to cover things and that in between there is this missing layer which is just like the human level of like what does it mean to do this to somebody why would somebody you know, come to identify this way, like no curiosity about that, no, no reckoning with like, even if somebody wants this, is it ethical to do it? Not even in the session about eunuchs, 
where they talk about these men, you know, having been traumatized as children by their parents threatening to castrate them. Like nobody was like, is it ethical to do it even if they really want it? That level is completely missing. And I'm still working on the the longer piece about WPATH, but the way that I put it there is to say, it's like there's this dark pit at the center of the conference, which is all of the things that nobody wants to talk about or think about. And nobody looks at it and nobody references it in any way, but also nobody like falls into it by accident. So they all know where it is, right? The blind and spot. And I think, well, like the, the shadow, the right? Yeah, like yeah, the, yeah, yeah. yeah, like the, the bag that you put everything in or, and, and one of the things that I think that, that I think that I saw at WPATH is mm -hmm. that you have people who have educated themselves out of their natural reaction to what they're doing. So like there was a surgeon who said when he was first confronted um, with a patient who wanted gender nullification surgery, which means cut everything off, that you know he was really uncomfortable and he grew past it. Like he, he educated himself. himself. Oh no, he, the, the doctor. The doctor. Okay, not the patient. His reservations and now performs a lot of those surgeries and thinks they're really important. So yeah. you have a lot of people who at some point or at some level have a, a normal human reaction to like, this is just like body horror type stuff, right? And they think that if you feel horror about it, it means that you didn't, you know, you, you need to work on yourself. You need to get over your, you know, your cis privilege, your heteronormativity, your endonormativity or whatever. Like, you know, they're talking about all of these things that you overcome. Mm -hmm. But, and you know that you're a good person and a good doctor because you look at a teenage girl who wants a hysterectomy and you don't feel horror about it like you can do it. You're not one of those reactionaries who's like, mm -hmm. oh my God, you know, they're sterilizing girls. Like you have this evolved response. Mm -hmm. But you still like the horror is still there and you have to project it on other people. And so there's a lot of like there's a lot of talk at the conference from the keynote address by like Rachel Levine, the U.S. Um, Assistant Secretary of Health, um, all the way down where they are talking about the people out in the world who wish that trans people didn't exist. This is what they say or that you know, we're contributing to like the suicide of kids who identify as trans. And there's all of this negative feeling being channeled at them. Because those are the people who say, look at what you're doing. Even if what those people outside are doing is reposting exactly what you said. Yes. And, and like the WPAS put out a statement condemning, um, articles that, that Mia Ashton and that Christina Buttons wrote about the conference and said that it was, you know, it was taken out of context and it was misinformation. And at least one of those articles included the entire video of the session. So the context that this video was taken out of was not the context of what people actually said. It was the context of everybody agrees with us. And it was put into a context of people who think what are you doing? 
And I think when you were doing something, I mean, the whole the whole movement is like this. It's not just the doctors that you have. If you have a movement that defines itself as being like sunshine and rainbows and unicorns and self-acceptance and authenticity. And it's actually like a body modification cult that is based on self-rejection and castration and all of these words that they don't want people to use to talk about what they're doing. You're going to have a lot of projection. You're going to have a lot of bad feelings that you don't know what to do with. And you're going to be uniquely ill-equipped to deal with harms that you may cause, abusers that may shelter under your really big umbrella, because you have defined yourself as good. And because you are not what you say you are. And like, ask trans people, that's not easy. The whole movement, it's like the movement has all of the problems that an individual who's desperately trying to buy in has. And all of reality has to has to bend, and that makes you very ill-equipped to deal with, yeah. you know, bad realities, like predators will take advantage, or people experience medical harm and detransition and have to live with it for the rest of their lives. One way of uh, you were talking about like this, uh, this shadow, they don't mm-hmm. touch or they can't touch even intentionally. And then I bet you I bet that can partially explain why people start policing language whenever they start to say, yeah. you know, don't use this word, don't use that word. It's because the chain reaction of using that word wannabe is yeah. th- th- it's inevitable. So don't. Don't go there. Yeah, I think so. Wow. And like even to call it, you know, to call what you do to Unix castration. I was in sessions, you know, earlier that day where they're talking about the same surgery, but it's for, you know, a non-binary male patient who doesn't identify as a eunuch, but he identifies, you know, maybe as a nullo. So as someone who's getting this nullification surgery. So if you let, if you talk about eunuchs in the language that they use for themselves and talk about castration, what's the difference between that and what you're doing to a non-binary man who wants his pulse cut off? There's not a difference. Hmm. Hmm. Therefore, even in a world where you're supposed to use, you know, defer to the community and use the language the community uses, like the language that Unix use cannot be allowed to like pass. But it was, it was just, it was so crazy. Like I came home, um, it was like a three and a half day conference. Um, and I came home on the last day and there had been the stress about like kind of the witch hunt for journalists. And so my heart had, you know, was kind of racing for like 48 hours about that. And it was just like when you are in a setting where you cannot show the way that you feel about something, you can't really feel it. And then you get home and you don't have to have a blank face and you can feel like, you know, what these people are doing, like they will be the last people on earth to know, to understand what they're doing. How do you, how do you process though? Getting back to reality or even worried that you won't, that you'll, it'll normalize. If you, if you look at this abyss too much, it'll be normalized in your own soul somehow. I think I used to worry about that. And I feel like my normal human reactions to things have stayed pretty intact. But I feel like it's less this desensitization and 
but, but there must be a degree to which it happens because, every, you know, something that I do is that I have a lot of like one-on-one -on -one conversations with people in real life. And so like at the university um, about this stuff and every now and then somebody will react with such complete just horror when they realize what's happening. And that's when I realized that, like, I guess I have been desensitized a little bit because then, like, I will feel it in full force, too. And I realized that even though I think I'm in touch with it, even though I, you know, I... Like, there is a certain level where you do have to, like, contain it to focus on it, you know? Yes, yes, As, yes. as, as your life's work. I mean... And for you too. I mean, you talk about this stuff all the time. What do you think that it? Yeah. How do you think that you manage it? Like, because you have a lot of very raw conversations with people. Yeah. It. Well, I. I. In one, it, it might even be kind of perverse. In on one level, I am. Like, just. I admire the absolute power of this demonic entity. Like I admire it. Like this thing is awesome. Like, like terrifyingly awesome. Yeah. So I yeah. can go like, I'm like, okay, that's pretty cool. Like, like just if, if I wanted to destroy society, that's freaking like, boy, balls I really out. did it. <laughs> that, that is just amazing. Like from like, just, you appreciate yeah. the villain. Um, and then there's sympathy for the lives that it's uh, deep sympathy and care for the lives that it's uh, mangling. Yeah. The one emotion that I can't square is anger, because if I actually took the anger seriously, it would be there's no other way to actually have a normal human reaction in the terms of normal human reaction without like wood chipper level. Yeah you know, retribution. And yeah. that is processed by a deep, uh, you know, inculcation of Christian values that ultimately there's, there's an ultimate judging force that yeah. will do, will, will exact the, the vengeance from the inside out. These people are damning their own souls to an yeah. eternity. Like they, they have, they have committed the ultimate, you can't commit a, a bigger sin than what they're doing. So, uh, you know, I, you know, there, there's, there's an eternity, um, which is beyond my control. I can't even conceive of eternity because I'm just a small <laughs> mortal human. So there's that, but goodness. Yeah. So, I mean, there, there's an arrangement of, of emotions that allow me to have distance and closeness to this material, but it is very toxic. Yeah. Like, um, Genevieve Glock, you know, like she looks at the, the, the porn stuff she's on i mean she's on the eunuch archive reading the like yeah. child rape stories yeah like i w i wouldn't i would i don't have the countenance to ingest that without it no sullying me in a way that i would need to you know do more than a few hail marys uh right yeah. but, but speaking of that speaking about that you look at this darkness does it 
kind of make you think in terms of religion or like kind of going back to like, did we lose? And, and I know this might be an uncomfortable thing or you might be an atheist or agnostic and that's fine. But it seems like this is an existential or even spiritual warfare that you're dealing with. Yeah. So the, the human imagination in the very least would like grasp for some sort of transcendental like foothold you know like god save us or even you know has it has it caused you kind of reevaluate your cultural context at the end of history um i think i think that it seems to me like a war on what it means to be human which is a certain kind of spiritual commitment to to say being human means having limits like it means something um and i think it has impressed on me the like that within a you know a secular society religion is a pretty safe outlet for human needs and something that like gender that fulfills those needs, but that we are unable to recognize as a belief system is a real danger to such a society. I I think it has given me a lot, like something that I've been thinking about a lot lately. And, and I would be really curious what you think about this too, is um, there have been all of these uh, kind of disputes within the gender critical camp about how to work across the political spectrum and like who does the movement belong to and who do we talk to and who do we work with um and i think that i think this issue has given me a lot of a lot more sympathy for um religious liberties to say to say no to some things and to say you can't make me say something that i don't believe And I think that it has given me, you know, when I think about the question of working with, working across the political spectrum or working with people with, maybe we disagree on everything other than this. Um, I think that, I think that this is a pretty easy one to get right. Like, it's not hard to say, like, we shouldn't sterilize kids. And if people like if Tucker Carlson gets there, I do not love that he's the major platform for criticism of this in, you know, my home country. (laughs) But if he gets there, that doesn't say anything about whether it's right or wrong. Like, this is a pretty easy one. (laughs) Like, he's right about this one thing. Um. It is interesting. Sorry. Oh, no, go ahead. No, no, no. What were you going to say? Oh, I was just... I feel like my views about working across the political spectrum have changed somewhat. Um, I remember in 2014, like, I had a lot of questions and doubts about the trans stuff. And... The, the first time that I heard anybody who expressed anything like what I was feeling was in this New York article that that Michelle Goldberg wrote, and she was writing about um, the Women's Liberation Front and what these women believed about gender and the risk that um, that trans activism was posing to to women's rights. 
And I was just like, oh my God, there are people out there who agree. Like, I'm not crazy. And then like in the next sentence, it was like, and then they partnered with the Heritage Foundation. And at the time I was like, you know, I was working in public health. I was volunteering, you know, and I was fighting the Heritage Foundation on like, you know, 10 different things across my life. And I was just like, it really fed into my feeling that I had to be missing something because those are bad allies, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And that, and for a long time, I was like, you know, that alliance, however limited it was, like it was a hearing, I think, that they worked together on. Um, like that alliance put me off for some years from finding more people who felt the way that I felt because it reinforced my feeling that I had to be missing something. But but I think that there's another way to think about that, which is the reason that I was so susceptible to that kind of like guilt by... Um, you know, proximity law brief. Or, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. This kind of like this kind of guilt by association was that I felt really bad for having doubts. That made me very vulnerable. And what I really wanted to be able to say was, I'm missing something. And if I had heard in a bunch of different outlets from a bunch of different people with a bunch of different viewpoints and perspectives that they were also concerned about it, I would not have felt that way. And so at this point, I think like the more visibility that we get on the issue, the more that we say, like, you don't have to come from any particular background. You don't have to be a socialist. You don't have to be a radical feminist. You don't have to be gay or lesbian. You don't have to be a parent. You don't have to be like anybody who is still in possession of their own senses can look at this and say, this is bonkers. Like, (laughs) I think that the more that we can get the message out there in just about any way, the more it will free people up to be like, okay, I'm not crazy. Okay, I'm not missing something. Okay, I'm not going to lose all my friends or my uh, public standing as a TikTok influencer. Right. Yeah, what were you going to say? Well, I... Uh, so you have people like uh, Walsh, uh, Matt Walsh, Daily yeah. Wire folks, uh, Ben Shapiro. I think that they would be probably theocratic, uh, maybe theocratic fascists even. Um, they're leading the charge, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, I mean, this is a common trope since I first arrived on the political scene through the Evergreen State College situation. What happened to yeah. Brett Weinstein, one T, Weinstein, fine wine, was that this terrible thing happened on the left from the left. He was of the left progressive through and through and nobody would talk to him, but Tucker Carlson. And because he went on Tucker Carlson, that allowed the evergreen state college to completely wash their hands of anything that he was saying, such as why don't we not be racist? No, we're going to be racist, but only in one direction. Um, And then I, I think even Colin Wright said, you know, I'll talk to anybody, but only the right wants to talk to me. Only yeah. the right wants to talk to me. It just, the the political game theory is that if the left ignores this long enough, it'll go away or just assimilate in the culture. Yeah. And then 15 years from now, the Republicans will be transing their children, right? Eventually, everybody's going to catch up with this lawn arc towards justice. There's that way of thinking about things, but also mm-hmm. there's a way of thinking about things that asks what went wrong with the left? Where exactly with the left did they go this far? And is this the natural yeah. outcome of other moves that they made? And then you start going in the reactionary direction. And you're like, okay, yeah. well, let's go back. Let's go back. Let's go back. And you yeah. can go. You don't have to stop at the Nazis. You don't. 
you can go further back to Christianity. You can go back to yeah. reality. You can go back to the long tradition of, uh, you know, Western imperialism and, uh, you know, uh, monarchy and all that stuff. So it's just, it's an open book once you start walking this path. And so I can see that, that if you start to question this, what else do you have to question about your life mm -hmm. and your belief, you know? And, uh, you know, I don't want to bring this back up because it's very uh, personal, but you also have to kind of mm -hmm. look at the abortion issue, not personally, but just mm -hmm. the whole thing. You have to look at it. And from the perspective of the battles within the gender critical feminist side of things where uh, there's a purity spiral now because uh, Kelly yeah. J. Keen, a.k.a. Posey Parker. Yeah, Posey yeah. Parker. Um, she, uh, some guy took a selfie with her that turned out to at one point being a chapter head of the Proud Boys. And this mm -hmm. guy only sh met with uh, Posey Parker because he knew that Antifa were going to go around and beat up women. So he shows up to stop Antifa yeah. from beating up women. And then the purists from, and it's a Britain thing too, because they have this whole policing with the left and the right, and they really don't want to have anything to do with racists. Yeah. Even though this guy definitely was not an Aryan, this Proud Boy, you know, but just the, the yeah. thing about Proud Boys, nobody defines what a Proud Boy is, but they do this whole purity spiral on the left using left tactics, using the same exact tactics that the trans rights activists used <laughs> to kick the women out of the feminist movement. Yeah. And you're like, and I've been saying this for years. The trans rights activists used the same exact moves that the radical feminists made yeah. in order to get power. But the radical feminists don't understand that they're part of this this cascade of liberation that goes all yeah, the way back is, to the founding yeah. of the American uh, country. And then you're like, wait, did the American is my entire assumption about America wrong? Are we all a bunch of rebels? And was that an, you have to start to question everything. So it's really, really difficult to start to make one move right. Because yeah. you don't know when that how, where that's going to lead, and it doesn't lead to Hitler. It's just one of the things that's been interesting about the purity spiraling is like it's very obvious that there are some people who are maybe only incidentally, or like maybe are only incidentally turfs, where they don't kind of reject, like you said, that culture that we see like its purest expression in trans activism, and it's like they didn't like being denounced. But they're happy to do it to other people for the right reasons. And and there are some of us who are like, we just don't do this. Like, this good, is what we were trying to get away from. Yeah. The good liberals. The classical. The liberal, I mean, just people who have, you know, just, yeah, that disposition where it's like, I'm not... I would be happy to tell anybody, you know, what I what I believe or what I think about something, and I'm not going to tell other people what to believe or think or say about something. And that applies here too. And I I think that there is a political realignment underway, and we don't really know where that's going to end up. Yeah. But I mean, the divides that are salient have changed, and hmm. it's less. You know, I'm not talking about the far right and the far left. I'm talking about you know social conservatives and and pro social progressives and like maybe the most salient divide right now is like who still wants to be part of this open society thing and wants to talk and you know wants to ask questions and wants things to be out in the open and we can work with those people and who wants to either on the far right or on the far left to 
go around our democratic institutions the way that like the trans lobbyists have done, that they have sought the cover of darkness, that they have sought to implement things without public scrutiny, without accountability, without even a language to talk about what they're doing. And that on the right, we see other, you know, other anti-democratic playbooks and that so those are the people what? that we have to work around. Oh, I mean, like, I do think that things in the U.S. like limiting that are trying to limit access to voting or trying to pick voters or there are plenty of anti-democratic things hmm. on the right that seem to be more in, in that domain and on the left that and, and the capture of the judiciary, which can certainly have that function in the United States. And that on the left, it's like this administrative alternative to democracy where there's this like contempt for what people, what ordinary people think if they don't have the right beliefs. And that those are kind of <laughs> two sides of the same coin. Mm -hmm. And that there are a lot of us in the middle who, you know, it's it's hard to get really excited about some of the things about liberalism, and yet it's, you know, the least bloody system that we've come up with, so we better stick with it. Uh, is it, though? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's the, if we're always going to have disagreement. Then you'd rather it be through argument and structured debate. Yes. 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 That doesn't work according to actual evolutionary principles of power. Whoever gets to define the terms of engagement wins. Yeah. So eventually no, you're going to have to, I mean, this is, this is what I'm talking about. Once you start questioning everything, you have to question everything. You're like, do you want a woman to be a woman or a woman to be whatever, whatever, whoever says yeah. a woman is. And if you want a woman to be a woman, you have to enforce that. You have to say no. And you need people that will do you, you like the, Again, it's perfect, perfectly illustrated by po uh, Parser, Parker Posey, Posey Parker, Kelly <laughs> J. Keene. She hired security to protect her from violent activists. That security yeah. is hyper-masculine. They yeah. are shit-kicking, gun-toting. I mean, w there was a black guy with huge dreads and a, and a Texas guy with this huge mustache, right? And that yeah, triggered the that feminists picture. who hate men. They hate men. They hate masculinity. Yeah. You need masculinity. What do we do with masculine? What do we do with the feminine? Do we go the trad route? Do we go the trad? I mean, do we go the trad? Do we expect women to act in a certain way and expect men to act in a certain way in order for society to function in a certain way? And do yeah. we need to impose social order? Do we need to return to just marriage as a sacred thing? Do we need to return to thinking of sex as something sacred that belongs within the context of a permanent relationship? I mean, what liberties are we willing to give up in order to see the path of pure libertinism halted? Yeah. I'm, and I'm just bringing up questions because once you start questioning one thing... <laughs> Yeah, it gets pretty messy pretty fast. And it's just like there is this, I don't know. I mean, we see it with politics. We see it on like conceptualizing relationships between men and women. Mm. Like social media has affected the conversation about gender in a bunch of ways. So it lets people, you know, have these extended experiences of online disembodiment. Online, you get to be whoever you say you are the way that you never are offline. Like it doesn't work offline. But maybe just as consequential and much broader is like, Online, you can mute and block and filter people. And in the real world, in an open society, in a sexually reproducing species, like you cannot, you know, like you can't do that, even though people will really try. Like men and women have to live together. 
we have to live with people in a, you know, in a society who we will disagree with. And it's not just, you know, I mean, people on the left will talk about it like it's this demographic game and you just wait them out until they die off. And it's like, hmm. this isn't, <laughs> yeah. this isn't well, living together. The funny thing about the demographics is that and a far right talking point about mass immigration, but the mass immigrants are very, very conservative. You know, if you're, right. if you're repopulating yeah, America, it's not exactly with Latinos, panning out the way that the Democrats thought that it would. <sighs> yeah. And so, then try telling, yeah. And then try telling what? Oh, I mean, and then try telling, you know, I, I think that we're making a lot of Republicans right now. Like, not just people are immigrating and they're more conservative than certain demographers expected, but, like, we are pushing people to the right because within the left, you know, the left is advocating to teach their kids insane things at school that are racist or anti-family or gender crazy or all of the above. Mm -hmm. They're actually, school counselors are actually... And psychologists are actually now being trained to take children away from their parents if the parents don't use the yeah. preferred pronouns, like by using the state to just take them up for a couple yeah. days and then put them back in. Yeah. You behave, you behave, you behave now. Yeah. And it's like, I, I think one of the kind of dark opportunities that this issue presents is that it, as much as Republicans want to make it a partisan issue as much as Democrats want to make it a partisan issue. This is actually an issue where in a very polarized country, people have an opportunity to connect on a different basis where it's not your political identity, but it's like you're a parent and hell no, you're not doing that to my kid, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. So I guess the optimistic take is that maybe there's a way through this where our politics gets less stupid because we remember that people aren't just, Republicans and Democrats and that they have all of these other identities or they're mm. not just white people and people of color. They're not just men and women. Like mm. we all have a lot of identities that we can be reached and connect with each other. One nation under God. I mean, the tower of Babel can only get so high before it crumbles. Right. Yeah. But it's, just, it just can't go on like this. Well, I mean, you are a part of defying the progress of entropy, let's just say, societal entropy on this one level. Mm -hmm. uh, do you, you, you expect yourself to be sane by the time you're done with your thesis? Or do you, do you, you think you're going to walk off into the Canadian wilderness and inuit um, yourself into an igloo and oh just gosh. forget about everything and spear some baby seals and survive on their parts. I mean, I just don't think that it's... I go back and forth between we're going to contain this and this is too big. So I don't actually know that it'll ever be over. I don't know how you feel about that. I mean, I think, like, there's a part of me that has to believe, like, okay, you put enough sunlight on this issue. And people are just not indoctrinated enough to buy it like if they can see it they will reject it and it'll stop and the part of me that you know is an activist or that writes or that does research and hopes that it will go you know that it will matter in some way has to believe that and then there's the part that's like there is a power behind this thing that 
I wonder if we will ever turn it back where it's like it's tied into this, you know, tech state censorship enterprise and this transhuman endless frontier, you know, frontier of embodiment goals and um, just and this whole like global empire of like that's built on disembodiment and surrogacy and sex work and porn and gender and like there is so much money in it that i wonder like can normal people like even if everybody saw it for what it was would it matter so i i don't mm -hmm. know that there's like a part where like is there a part where we go and wander off into the woods and it's over what do you yeah. think well okay so i i just i want to bring up kind of a gory image um mental image uh i'm not going to put it on the screen go for it um <laughs> You know, they say sunlight's the best disinfectant. This is what you're talking about and questioning. But I, there, there was this uh, incident, medical incident, where a homeless person had a wound on their foot and kept their shoe on. Like, they had some wound okay. and it went gangrenous. But then somehow flies got in there and laid their eggs. And they're, they're, it, the, the maggots ate all of the rotting the flesh. And it was just by the time that the problem was discovered uh, and, and there, this person was brought in, the, it was just bone up to a point. It was just pure bone. The foot was pure bone up to a point uh, below the sock or something like that. Right. So in, in one respect, sunlight is a disinfectant. In another respect, you go to the Beelzebub route and you just let evil take care of itself and you just let you, you introduce some sort of counter darkness and it just eats itself up. But when I, when I think in that direction and we think about the lies that gender is based on or gender medicine is based mm -hmm. on, those same exact lies are operative in the financial system and are orders of magnitude worse like like our entire monetary system and economic system is built on lies it's all lies <laughs> and we're all just like if that thing cascades nobody's going to give a shit about gender nobody's going to have time for that yeah. right which is yeah uh, i guess that's the other way out isn't it just total societal collapse, collapse. yeah <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I had very mixed feelings about seeing that NASA had like successfully diverted an asteroid or something in a test, and it was like that's our best. Like that's our best. <laughs> so these are the real dark thoughts. Don't the destroy the asteroid. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. So who are you writing for? Is this? Do you do regular uh, engagements such as we're doing now? Um, I've had a couple. But um, yeah, I was actually thinking of just starting, you know, having some conversations, whether it's a podcast or not. Um, like I write for Substack a couple times a week, and um, your own. And have started, yeah. What's it called? Started writing. Plug it, plug it. It's called called what? Plucking plug entropy. Plug it. Oh, plug it, plug it. Um, it's called gender hacked. Huh. So kind of. I really liked the metaphor of like gender is like this malware and if you click okay and you like let it in it doesn't really matter what you why you clicked okay it will like turn your entire system against itself so i wanted to write about how kind of individuals and movements and societies get hacked by this like belief system 
Um, but yeah, I would love to have more conversations because like people, people write to me a lot and they have, you know, they have stories where about their kids or about their own experiences with gender, or I have, there's this curious vein of, um, young women who will write to me on Twitter where my like messages are open and they'll write these very, like initially very hostile messages where it's like, you probably like, don't want me to say it this way, but like, I think that you're wrong. And like, I'm using this language that you definitely like hate and don't think I should use. And, and those are always such interesting conversations because basically all you have to do is say like, you know, I don't use that language because it doesn't let me say the things that I need to say. But if it works for you, you should use it. And it never does. And then it's over. Hmm. So it's a little bit of a like a deprogramming. Hmm. I don't know. I have a lot of ideas for things. Like I, I would really like for there to be something like a gender dysphoria clearinghouse where like, you know, if somebody, if your family or friend, if somebody comes out that you could get like a resource packet that's like, here's the best that we know. Here's what's probably going on. I don't know. Hmm. A lot of ideas and, you know, limited yeah. number of assistants to carry out my. Just build a, yeah. build an NGO, you know, get some, get yeah. some funding, you know, contact the heritage yeah. organization or whatever they're oh, called. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh boy. Wow. I I feel like we have a lot to talk about. Um, so maybe we can have you back on. Maybe even really with great. Mia, since it sounds like yeah. you guys get along. And if you don't get along, that's fine for oh, me because I so love we have, like, cat fights in my show. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, I'm sure that we would get along. We were texting a lot during the conference, but we've never actually like spoken or met. Oh, really? So. Yeah, that would be really great. That's good because I want to ask about your gender journey. Okay. But. But we won't now. I, uh, and for the last question, or clarifying question, yeah. why does your brother said that you're the lead down the garden kind of girl? What does that mean, leading Lead the down the garden path. Um, I think that he would say that... I just... I, I think the other way to put it would be that I, that I tend to give people rope when they're being crazy and to be like, what are you going to do with this, you know? Like, I just kind of, I'm interested to just see things play out and see what happens. Okay. That's what he means. Okay. Huh. Eliza Mondegreen, I have one question to ask you off camera, but yeah. I'd like you okay. to, uh, if you want to, say goodbye to the audience or sign off okay. in your favorite way. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. And um, I love listening to your podcast. So I, I hope that a few people will enjoy this one too. No. I'm really excited to share it, and links to your work will be in the description. Okay. Good night. Okay, don't. Okay, don't I'm not.